Let's pray together as we come now to the Bible. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray um, that uh, you would help us to, to so see you that um, other fears would just fade into the background. We'd be filled with joy and delight and love and the power of your Spirit. And we pray that your word would do this for us this morning. Amen. I want to introduce the passage that we're studying this morning like, uh, like this. Uh, we're in Romans, so you'll find it on page 940, chapter 3. And uh, Romans, of course, is one of the easiest books in the Bible. And we all know that, right? It's pretty easy, straightforward. Uh, and this passage actually is not just one of the hardest passages in Romans. It's one of the hardest passages in the Bible, many commentators will tell us. And you've got to kind of set it up right. So let me, let me set it up for us like this. There's a well-known phrase uh, that's in our culture, which is called believe in yourself. You've probably heard it. It's so prevalent. It's everywhere. And uh, it's, it's hard not to, to, to like it in some ways because it is popular, because it makes you feel good, that sort of thing. And uh, I want to illustrate how this works with one recent movie. It's a Disney movie. I like Disney movies. It's got nothing against them, by the way, just in case you think I do. Um, and I actually am going to see this particular movie later with my daughter because she loves it. Um, uh, uh, but there's one little clip that kind of illustrates the point I'm making, which I have seen on YouTube. And it's the clip of uh, Let It Go, this song in Frozen. You, you know the song? Let it go, let it go, let it go. Um, you know, and she twirls around, you know, and little things come out of her fingers. Let it go. And there's a nice castle. It would be fun to be able to do that, wouldn't it? If we had a building program, we could just let it go. And, you know, there we go. And, uh, you know, I was moved when I saw it inside, deep down. It was moving. I wanted to let it go. Um, But the illustration is this, that in some ways that represents, you know, it's just kind of, patting someone on the back and encouraging them, and that's fine. But in some ways, it illustrates this idea in our culture. The way to succeed is to accept yourself as you are and to believe that in yourself there's some kind of innate potential. It really goes back to a basic worldview issue. So in other words, what we're saying in our culture is the reason why people don't succeed is because they really are good inside, and there are external forces that are repressing them, And what has to happen is they have to let it go. (laughs) That's the basic worldview. And it's everywhere, Uh, the believe-in-yourself idea. Uh, It is in uh, business philosophy. It is in our schooling. Uh, It is in many churches, I'm afraid. It's got to believe in yourself. It's a feel-good positivity message. And then we come across a passage like this. So let me read it for you. Romans chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. It's in the middle of uh, Paul's conversation, with the question and answer session that's going on. He's repeating these questions, and then he's giving insight on how he replied to them. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. We'll explain what that means in a moment. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people still honestly charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. 
Now, this is the kind of thing that gets Paul in trouble, isn't it? I mean, in which uh, part of culture today would you ever have someone saying, you know, their condemnation is just? It sounds so angry, so nasty, so just like the sort of thing that people accuse us Christians as being today, you know, always against things, pointing our fingers at other people and saying they're wrong, their condemnation is just. What is going on here? Paul is actually uh, recalling a particular accusation that he had. Slander, as he calls it here, as it's translated uh, in this version. Uh, And that accusation was that Paul, when he taught his message of free grace, was actually encouraging immorality, loose living, that sort of thing. And so Paul uh, found that people were twisting his message of free grace to say that he was trying to be permissive about evil behavior. When he said it's not the law, it's by Jesus, they were saying, well, therefore that means you can do whatever you like. It was a pretty uh, prevalent criticism. He comes uh, to it again in chapter 6, as we'll see when we get there at some point in the new millennium. And so Paul is dealing this sort of accusation. As I said last time we looked at it, it's a sort of question and answer session after Paul has preached in the synagogue. And it's getting a little fiery now. Very simply, the passage is structured like this. There are two uh, sets of questions and answers. Verses 5 to 6 is one set of questions and answers. Verses 7 to 8 is another set of questions and answers. And they're both answering the same sort of issue that is now developing, uh, this accusation that he had in two different ways. The one, uh, first one, he's honoring God. That's what Paul is doing. He's answering by honoring God. And the second one, he's humbling people. Now, when we say humble people, it sounds like the preacher is trying to make us feel small, And the very reverse of let it go. But actually what it's really doing is showing us how we can actually be who we were meant to be truly. And not be disappointed. Which that philosophy of believing yourself so often does. It just disappoints us. So here's the main proposition. It's a complicated sentence. If you're taking notes, write it down. If you're not taking notes, I'll repeat it at least one more time. Joyfully embrace the gospel of God. So this isn't a depressive sermon, it's joyfully. Joyfully embrace the gospel of God. Why? It honors God. It humbles people. As I say, we'll explain that in a way that is redemptive and shows why that's good news. Humbles people. Well, what's the point of that? To release us from the trap of the fear of man. In other words, this sense that many of us do feel that we need somehow to let it go to be able to be all that we're meant to be. The real solution comes down to the gospel of God, which honors God and humbles people, puts us in the right place as we're made to be in his image. So it's two simple points, honoring God, humbling people. First, honoring God, verses 5 to 6. And in verses 5 to 6, two things are going on. Paul is articulating the question, and then he's responding to it. One, the question. Here's the question, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That's the question. And uh, it goes something like this. Someone is responding to Paul's preaching. Well, Paul, if our unrighteousness does not prevent us from being saved, and if, in fact, that unrighteousness is furthermore used by God to show his righteousness, why can't we just do whatever we like? Or if, in fact, uh, that's the case, why can't we just say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? 
And then Paul has this phrase that's in parentheses in our translations, I speak in a human way. In other words, Paul here is indicating that he's recording someone else's question. It's not something that he himself would countenance, would entertain, would think. It's something that someone else was asking him. Surely, Paul, and I'm just articulating the kind of thinking behind this, if God's righteousness stands despite my unrighteousness, if our unrighteousness even it serves to show God's righteousness, how can God be unrighteous? How can God then righteously in, uh, inflict wrath on sinners, judge sinners? In other words, the thinking is this. Is God judging people for being bad when them being bad makes him look good? That's not fair. Now, Paul has an answer to that question, and uh, we'll see it, and it comes back to the honor of God. But before we see the answer, I want us to really think about the question. Where does that question come from? Why would someone ask that question? And the reason why they would ask that question is because they're beginning to understand Paul's preaching. Paul really is saying the gospel is a gift. He really is saying we're saved by faith in Jesus alone. And so here comes the question. Well, doesn't that mean I can do whatever I like? The reason why I want us to think of the cause of that question is because this is a helpful diagnosis as to whether the gospel is being understood in our church, in our culture. Do people come back at us and say, you guys are all into laws and rules and doing what is right? I think they do, don't they? If you were walking down the street in Wheaton, certainly in Chicago, and you said, well, what do evangelicals stand for? What would they say? They would probably talk about various moral issues. Wouldn't they? Of course, we do stand for various moral issues, and Paul has an answer to this question. But I wonder whether actually the message that we're preaching has even begun to penetrate our culture. Because if it had, they would ask this question. Well, doesn't that mean I can do whatever I like? When you are walking down the street of Wheaton and you say you go to college church and someone says to you, well, doesn't that mean that you can do whatever you like? We would have begun to have the message of the gospel understood. I'm not sure we've even begun. If you're enrolled in the school of religious moralism, you receive a graduate degree in guilt. If you begin to understand the gospel, the first question you ask is, doesn't that mean I can do whatever I like? No, it doesn't mean you can do whatever you like, but unless you ask that question, you haven't even begun to understand the gospel. If you're sitting out there and thinking, this guy is just going to tell me, do this, do that, follow that, be good, and you'll go to heaven, you have not even begun to understand what I'm preaching. Not even the first little bit. That is precisely not what we are preaching. Until you come up to me at some point or other and say, well, doesn't that mean I can do whatever I like? <laughs> Till that happens, 
you haven't started to understand the gospel. So in chapter 6, when Paul has explained a lot more of the gospel, exactly the same question happens. Well, shall we not sin that, that grace may abound? Well, the answer is by no means, as Paul says here too. But until you ask that question, you haven't understood the gospel. You're just thinking it's rules and regulations and things you've got to do in order for certain results to happen. That's what you're thinking. That's what our culture is thinking. How does Paul answer it? Well, that's verse 6. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? Now this, like a lot of Paul's writing, is extremely condensed form of argument. I think in many ways when we're looking at Romans, we're looking at his notes for when he preached in the synagogue. Each little bit is a compacted summary of many sermons that he gave. And this is extremely condensed. And you really have to think about it a long time before you even begin to understand why this is a good answer. The reason why it's a good answer is because most people at the time just assumed there would be a judgment. It was part of their worldview. It's not part of the worldview of most people today. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, Not at all. But then, that is what they thought. So, for instance, you know, in our world today, people simply assume certain things, like gravity. We've heard of Isaac Newton. We know that, you know, an apple was dropped, and the reason why that happened was because of gravity. And so then if someone says, you know, I'm thinking about jumping off the steeple of the college church after that service, you know, I I really didn't like that announcement, so I'm going to jump off the steeple, whatever it is. And you say, well, I don't think that's a good idea, because if you heard of something called gravity? Well, Paul was saying something similar here. That's not a good idea, because if you heard of something called judgment? You see? It's assuming a worldview. And this kind of answer wouldn't work with your friends, if you're downtown Chicago, your non-Christian friends at school or whatever, because they don't assume judgment. But Paul is modeling a response to questions, and the, model he's, the response that he's modeling here is going to the principle that people do hold in common. So let's work with that model a little bit, with that question and that idea we began with, believing yourself. Is that always a bad thing to do? No, of course not. If we are relying on our Judeo-Christian heritage, our framework of moral values, then to trust that framework is not a bad thing. It's a disguised trust of good moral principles that we had growing up within a Christian culture, right? So in that sense, believing yourself isn't always a bad thing, but is it always a good thing? What is the principle that it is appealing to? Let me ask some other questions that will draw it out for us. You know, are there some people that you and I would rather did not believe in themselves? (laughs) I think there are. Take an extreme example, the mass murderer. Is the answer to his problem that he needs to believe in himself? Some people would say it was. I don't think so. Do you? Or look at it another way. 
was Hitler's problem low self-esteem? See, that's the logical conclusion of making a universal principle out of believe in yourself. Or the head of North Korea, what's his name, Kim Jong-un? I don't know him personally, but uh, is his problem, assuming we think he has one, that he doesn't believe in himself enough? Some people would say, well, they wouldn't want to go that far, would they? But we need to push them to the principle. The principle is that justice, this issue here, demands a value beyond the self. And what is that value? And so our culture struggles today. Now, of course, I understand that the majority of people are not neo-Nazis in the making. But even for most of us, this believe in yourself, you know, you sort of go to a yoga class and they tell you your problem is you've got to believe in yourself. Believe in yourself, you know, as you open your mind. It's actually depressing in the end. Have you ever thought about it? It was actually the French psychologist Emile Coulet who first advised that. He had a little phrase, every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. (laughs) I'm not. I mean, I hope I'm growing in grace and sanctification, but my knees sure hurt a lot more than they used to. And I'm far from convinced that the way to grow in grace and sanctification is to self-hypnotize myself that I'm getting better every day. Instead, it's to be real and confess my sins, isn't it? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And it isn't perhaps me or you or us anymore. As I say, it becomes cruel. You go to a business seminar and they say, believe in yourself, believe in yourself, and you find that, uh, well, you try that, and still your name is not in who's who. It might be in who's that. (laughs) Or you have a child who is not what you hoped, or college grades that are not what you wanted. Or you find you cannot retire after all. You don't know whether you'll ever be able to retire at this rate in the economy. And is the answer to believe in yourself? I think it's cruel. I think it is cruel to tell us to believe in ourselves without basis or foundation. We need to believe in God. In other words, Paul here is stepping back from the question, bringing out the principle of justice, so to honor God. And when we do that, it begins to release us. This is the second point, humble people. But we've got to understand what he means by humble people. Not under someone's thumb, release to be who you're meant to be. This is verses 7 to 8. And again, Paul first articulates the objection and then responds to it. So verse 7 goes like this. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? 
Here is the objection. In other words, again, Paul is summarizing great sort of concentrated ideas. You've got to pull them out and dilute them in order to understand what he's saying, which is why we're going slowly through the book of Romans, because there is so much concentrated truth. There's some books you cannot go slowly through, you know? If you want to go slowly through a book, don't pick First Chronicles or something, right? And other books are stories. You've just got to tell the story. Paul's letter to the Romans is concentrated truth, and what you've got to do is you've got to dilute it. You've got to not dilute the truth, but you've got to put it apart and look at it and see it and not its concentrated form here. So let me do that for us. Here's the objection. If it all comes down to God's glory and honor, glory and honor, here I'm using the synonymous terms. If that's the case, uh, Paul, uh, then even human lying abounds to God's glory. And the uh, inquisitor is referring back to uh, Paul's previous answer that God is true even though everyone is a liar in verse 4. If that's the truth, how can God condemn us? In other words, if lying can be used to God's honor, how can God condemn lying? Now, what is really happening here is a clash of worldviews. This person is functioning within a fundamental, I centered, me centered worldview. Not in a modern sense, of course, this is an ancient text, but in a similar kind of way. This questioner is pushing back on the basis of this worldview that he or she had to focus on I and why. Can you pick up almost the whining tone? Why am I still being condemned? So Paul's just expressing the objection that came his way. And then verse 8, Paul counters it. Now, it is formed as a question, the first part of verse 8, and it's very tricky to figure out why that is, and this is my best uh, solution to it. Verse 8, why do not evil, uh, why not do evil? In other words, this question here is a sort of bridge question, both to have the logical connection made clear, but also to bridge towards Paul's moral outrage that that is the logical connection. Again, let me explain it. So verse 8, and why not do evil that good may come? Sort of bridging question in his argument here. And then he says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. And then he concludes with this astonishing statement, their condemnation is just. How do we understand this? This is the best I can do. To think that because God mercifully redeems us from the pit, that because God sovereignly weaves together his good purpose, even despite evil, to think that that is a justification for doing evil ourselves, that some good will come as a result. It's morally repugnant. It's disgusting. It's a gross, horrible idea. Some people were slanderously charging Paul with saying just that. He never thought it or even said it at all. What he did say and what he often preached is this, that God can take the greatest evil 
even the cross where wicked men nail Jesus, the greatest evil (laughs) for the greatest good, God's glory through the salvation of all who believe. To think that that sovereign mercy over our broken, fallen world is an excuse for doing evil that good can come as a result. Well, that is outrageous. And that is the passion, then, behind Paul's phrase, their condemnation is just. Let me unpack that for us. Think of it like this. For end to justify means. So-called good ends justifying evil means. That is the logical conclusion of a godless universe, isn't it? Why not? Why not assert ourselves? Isn't that the basic worldview of the runaway drugs cartel? Tribal loyalty, violence for the little tribe? Isn't that the basic worldview behind the manipulation, the gross, disgusting manipulation of Auschwitz that had, as the trains went through the tunnel above the phrase, work makes you free? Isn't it the for the greater good idea? that excuses dictators fueled by self for the greater good. Who is to decide which end is justifiable? Which person is to be hurt? For whose personal goal? For the greater good. I think if you scratch beneath the surface of our political controversies and our economic scandals, you will find people thinking like this. There's some greater good they're pursuing if it's just their own family or their own well-being. And it is rightly to be condemned. And what I want you to see here is that Paul is brave enough to do so. And I want you to have similar bravery. I I know a student who was once put in a very difficult situation in a class of 100 people or so. It was medical school. Uh, The lecturer had asked all the students their opinion about an issue of life and death. She'd given her viewpoint anonymously. The lecturer discerned that it came from a Christian worldview and So announced there was one Christian in the class and asked the Christian to stand up as everyone else laughed. And she stood up. Now what gave her the bravery to do that? It wasn't because she believed in herself. No, she had the honor of God and the humility. Not an under-the-thumb, self-repressive, nasty, negative way, but the humility to be who we are meant to be as designed by God. 
I listened to a recent interview from Bono, lead singer of U2, and he was at the bedside of his father as his father died from cancer. And he'd been praying that his father would have dignity to die well. And what he realized as that prayer was not answered was what we really needed was humility. He called it the eye of the needle through which we must all pass. It's not about believing in yourself. It's about believing in God. I once came across a converted former Muslim whose Bible was discovered in his backpack while he was serving in the army of his country. He was beaten and dismissed and had actually to leave his country. He's now in a different country seeking a better land. Not because he believes in himself. I know a mother who each day gets up and cleans the mess in the bed left behind by the behind of her disabled son. It's not because she believes in herself. I know a businessman who provides for his family and his employees and refuses to compromise morally for the sake of a fast buck. Not because he believes in himself, because he believes in God. And I want you to have that courage too. I want you not to have that short-lived self-hypnosis of believe in yourself positivity, but a Martin Luther-like confidence. Ah, you'll need wisdom and care, slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. And perhaps Martin Luther, certainly at the end of his life, could have done with a little more of that. But to stand up before the opposition of our day because of who God is. To be able to answer questions about the gospel your teenage child or your mother or your professor or your student asks you questions that are rather difficult or someone even slanders you. I want you, as you're sitting there this morning in this church with all that it may mean to you, To realize that you have a purpose, that you are part of a plan, that God is not finished with you yet. Not because you believe in yourself, but because of who God is. In other words, I want you to see small people in a big God. Not insignificant people. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, uh, everyone, around us are, uh, everyone around us is an immortal. We are all immortals. Of course, that's true. We've all been designed by God with infinite potential, eternal wealth, eternal worth. But I want you to be released from the fear of man, from the guilt and negativity 
not by believing yourself to let it go, but by the power of the grace of the gospel of God that honors God and humbles people. Questions that come from outside, questions that come from within. Do I have value? Am I loved? You can read all the self-help books you like, and they'll constantly tell you to think well of yourself and have a positive self-view. And you will find in the end they are deeply discouraging. Because of who we are and because of who God is, there's only one real solution to all that. That is to put your trust in Christ and to tell yourself, not over and over again that you're naturally good when you're not, but to tell yourself over and over again that you are loved, that you are valued, and that in Christ you are a part of a sovereign purpose for the whole universe. that cannot be defeated by sickness, by death, not even by doubt. I want you then to joyfully embrace the gospel of God because it honors God, honors God, His sovereign purpose. Humbles people, not makes them feel horrible and bad and negative, but rightly orientates them with God's whole plan for the whole universe so that our lives are interwoven with his and we understand his purpose and so we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. To be released from the trap of the fear of man. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that would be true. I pray that this gospel would go out from this place, not just to the furthest corners of the world, but to the furthest corners of our hearts and to our neighbors next door, that they would understand that we're preaching the gospel of free grace, as I pray we would understand. When we ask, oh, doesn't that mean I can do whatever I like, we would understand that no, because of the honor of God, having been saved by such a grace, what will we not do for the honor of God? We wouldn't try and puff ourselves up as self-important, as having this degree or that background or having been in this church for so many years or having come from this family. But instead, rest secure in God's, your, Jesus, your amazing love. And so to be what we are meant to be, increasingly, gradually. We pray this for Jesus' name. Amen.